Alternative Play. Welcome to Alternative Play, a podcast that explores both the worlds of kink and nerd culture. No matter what your flavor of fun is, we talk about it all. The podcast where nerd and geek culture meets leather and latex. So tighten your restraints, break out your comics, roll a d20 and get ready for some fun. Welcome to Alternative Play. I'm your host, JC. For those of you who are just getting turned on to the show, Alternative Play is a podcast where we introduce you to those who dwell in the nerd culture and kink communities. We cover the gambit on alternative lifestyles and for those who create content within both communities. Alternative Play will cover topics that are quite adult in nature, so listener discretion is advised. Also, for those of you who have been following Alternative Play, we now have a Patreon, which we'll include in the show notes. This will help us keep the show going and help back a munch-in-the-box style game that is currently in development. All right, so tonight I am honored to have an amazing member of the gaming community, uh, James Jim Grimm Despero. I'll give James a chance uh, to give a personal introduction in a moment, but I'd like to point out a few of his accomplishments. So James is an accomplished game designer, as I kind of mentioned, who owns Postmortem Studios out of the UK and has written for several or more other game companies. Uh, James's YouTube channel, uh, Grim Jim, has spent a lot of time giving us an in-depth analysis of things going on in gaming and politics. And James is also the developer of the Tales of Gore RPG, and many other RPGs have considered controversial. So James, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Thank you very much. All right. Before we jump into your writing and game design, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? I am in my mid-40s. I'm just coming up on 20 years of professionally working in the the game industry, and I've been all over the place (laughs) in that. Uh, I've worked freelance for other people. I've worked for myself. Started out doing the Munchkin's Guide to Power Gaming for Steve Jackson Games. Uh, which spawned that whole sort of set of Munchkin products that I don't see a dime from, unfortunately, and always take the opportunity to complain about. Um, and yeah, I'm I'm drawn to controversial subjects because I find them interesting because that's where the conflict is, and stories tend to be driven by conflict. And I'm also attracted to the topic of sex and kink because it's controversial, and because it's radically underserved in in the gaming space as a whole whether it be computer games you know it's relegated to to one side whether it's in role-playing games uh, there just seems to be this kind of willingness to embrace violence in games but a total unwillingness to examine human sexuality which is weird because it's a driver of so many stories and civilizations and cultures and subcultures and everything else so I have an interest and I'm trying to find a way to to make it work and open people's minds a little bit. All right. Awesome. So let's kind of start with the beginning. So gaming, what got you interested in gaming and give us a little bit of a timeline of uh, your development history in the industry. So I got into gaming really via board games and the fighting fantasy game books. I wasn't one of those people that started with D&D. Uh, that was much more of an American phenomenon and didn't really penetrate the UK until until later. It's, um, it's a very different scene over here in a lot of ways because of that different beginning. My dad was a maths teacher, so he was very interested in kind of nurturing my interest in the mathematics and rules and, and things like that through games. Um, and he took me to a model shop that no longer exists in a nearby town called called Basingstoke where I picked up my first sort of handful of games, which was Merp, which was kind of throwing me in at the deep end. That's a Middle-earth roleplay that was based off Rollmaster. If anyone knows anything about that, knows that was a complicated and difficult thing. And I played it wrong for years, but I was playing it, you know. And um, Battle Cars, which was a games workshop ripoff of Car Wars, 
Um, and I had a friend at school who was very into the fighting fantasy books. And we used to, one of us would read and one of us would make the decisions and roll the dice and it would sort back and forth. And I would, I would tell stories to my classmates and I was always very into writing stories and so on. And so th- that's, that's really how I got my start in that. And I mean, immediately right from the get-go, I always liked to be the one creating the games, creating the adventures. I didn't enjoy playing so much. And to this day, I I much prefer being the games master. And then I started producing fan materials later on in my teens and into my early 20s, started attending conventions. Uh, Games Fair 92 or 91 I think was my first big convention because used to have Games Fair and European Gen Con both used to be in the UK and I sold some of my fan material there which was yeah, blatantly <laughs> stealing in intellectual <laughs> property at the time yeah fo- photocopied um sort of fanzines and uh, I think a London expansion for Cyberpunk I I did at the time uh, that would have been I think 92 and then in 98 through 99 um, me and my friend Steve Mortimer was my writing partner early on. This was kind of the the early days of the internet. Ninety <laughs> five was when the first the first time I really got fully online and on email lists and websites and things. And we just spammed every single games company we could find an email address for, with ideas that we had for doing stuff and offering to freelance. A couple got back to us. A couple of things fell through. I could have been the author of a new edition of Chill <laughs> about the same sort of time, but that oh, all went wow. through. Yeah, unfortunately. But Steve Jackson Games took us took us up on the idea of a sort of comedy um, role playing book. So I did the Munchkin's Guide to Power Gaming, and that's that's really how I got my start. For all I bitch and moan about not getting any money from the card <laughs> game and everything, they did give me my break, and then that led to freelancing for Mongoose, and then that led to freelancing for other people. And then I was feeling a bit hemmed in by the comedy angle, which was all anyone seemed to want to employ me for. And then around 2005, I think, maybe a little bit earlier, I lost my regular job and was out of work for like 18 months. And they forced you to go on these courses to teach you skills that you can get jobs. And it was all stuff I already knew. And I was being rejected from jobs. You know, I was applying for shelf stacking and anything and everything I could I could find to apply for. And I was just being forced to jump through all these hoops. And I thought, ah, fuck it. I'll just I'll just go into business for myself. Because um, PDFs were just starting to sort of take off around that time. So the barrier to entry to publish role-playing material was really, really <laughs> low all of a sudden. Um, and that hit just kind of the right time for me. Uh, so I formed my own company and started churning stuff out it's a little bit more complicated but uh that's as that's as short as i can really sum it up i guess yeah so i i totally get it the the 90s was actually kind of a great time for i guess um cutting your teeth in the industry i mean even for myself i've kind of had the similar same experiences um one of the games that i first published was online with a friend of mine jared Sorensen. back then he went on actually to do some pretty cool indie stuff but it was just really simple to put a free RPG up on the internet and people who actually had connection was able to like look at it, you know, take it, whatever, run it, which was really nice. And also, yes, I remember the time of the zines. And it seems like a lot of companies at that point weren't pretty, well, I mean, there was the old TSR, but we're going back to the 80s and the, uh, the 70s mm-hmm. were really protective about their IP. But a lot of companies actually were just really cool about uh, fanzines being done so because yeah. uh, now i mean especially after 99 2000 when watsi first released their um their osl well actually it wasn't the ogl at the time it had another name i think it was just called the d20 license but that kind of opened a weird floodgate of people who still can't write for the life of them <laughs> to publish <laughs> uh you know if you go to something like drive through rpg or rpg now you can literally just swim through a sea of badly written, badly ripped off D20 products that I don't even know if these people are still alive or not, but it's, (laughs) 
it's an amazing wasteland of, of stuff, but, you know, and again, but there are the people who kind of started, you know, before that, like yourself, who actually kind of made a mark or had um, contributed something to the company. And I'm not trying to be mean and say that the D20 developers back in the day were, were horrible people because some good stuff came out of it, but it was a very small percentage of things. And maybe at some point we'll even talk about the book of erotic fantasy, which changed uh, the way the um, D20 license worked because yeah. of just incredibly how controversial and horribly done that book was. But um, <laughs> all right, flip onto the other side of the fence now. So when we talk about kink, um, what flavor of kink do you identify with? What is, and I'm not saying you have to give a resume, but, <laughs> um, general ballpark of um, of things that might you know actually apply to the gaming industry, for example. <laughs> you, you want my purity test score? Is, is that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would say I'm dominant, but more of a kind of uh, psychological dominant. Um, okay. See, the, the the thing is, right? We're gonna have to go into my background a bit. So I live rurally, and I always have pretty much lived out in the countryside and in mm. the days before the internet th there was basically no access to much of anything that would have informed me that i was <clears throat> sorry that i was kinky uh -huh. um but i knew i was but i thought there was something wrong with me <laughs> um in a, in a lot of ways despite being an atheist i seem to carry a lot of catholic guilt about uh, this sort of thing um so for a very long time i didn't really know what was going on and um, just kind of kept it to myself, I suppose. Um, a friend moved away to university when I was about uh, tail, tail end of 15, coming on 16. And he couldn't take everything with him. So he, he left me his collection of Gore books, which was, I think, the first 20, maybe a couple of others. And reading through those was kind of like this revelatory oh, okay, there are other people that are turned on by the same sorts of things that I am to the point that these, these books are published. Maybe I'm not such a, such a weird outcast who should be worried about themselves <laughs> after all. But I still kind of kept it to myself for, for the most part. Yeah, it was just, it was, for me, it was this weird, dirty little secret for a long time. As I got older, I realized that other people were into it that there were people that liked to be submissive, which would complement the dominant side. But I still kept it very much to myself. There were a few occasions after I'd uh, been out clubbing a few times um, and seen sort of where the sort of goth industrial scene kind of crossed over with the kink uh -huh. scene a bit. Because people would go to, uh, say, the Electric Ballroom in Camden, and then they would go on to slime light and slime light would cross over with people from the torture garden so you, you got kind of exposed to that stuff there and then a couple of times i would sneak off to, to london telling my friends i had to stay home and telling my telling my parents i was going to visit my friends and then i would sneak off to london and uh, sort of look <laughs> in the background of some of these kink clubs just trying to figure out where i was so I've always been kind of on the periphery, kind of anonymous, interested in it, but very rarely getting the opportunity to indulge. So I guess whatever the kink equivalent of a secular Jew, um, that would be <laughs> that, would, that would be largely largely what, what I've been. I'm, I'm, I still feel kind of weird and guilty and hung up about a lot of it, and I don't really understand why anymore because I'm fairly open about it, like I'm open about most things in my life just not necessarily the specifics it actually mentioned that it and this is kind of one of the things that i like to talk about nerd culture and kink is is because whether it's books comic books um whatever a lot of times things like that really help bring out something in us that or help us explore something so for yeah. example for me actually it was kind of a similar path the gore books initially and then also living in San Francisco, which is a very alternative city to begin with, mm. a lot of the imageries and a lot of the, you know, a lot of imagery in a lot of the areas, especially going into the Castro, which is a primarily homosexual district. Well, actually, it is a primarily homosexual district <laughs> where a lot of the, that culture doesn't particularly hide 
in, in that area mm. because that that is their space. So growing up around that, um, gore books and just um, various weird, naughty comics that I would end up picking up here and there really kind of clicked. And, and again, I was, I was raised, raised Roman Catholic. So also it was just the idea of things like polyamory or DS or MS or things like that were just really these sort of like, oh my God, these are tools of the devil. You know, <laughs> I, I need to immediately go and confess these. But, but gaming and I think gaming comics, um, a lot of the things that we, we look at as nerd culture today uh, were, were helpful. Uh, just think about things like a second life. So yeah, Second yeah. Life people can go on and be totally anonymous if they want to. Some people aren't, but and go live a lifestyle that they can't particularly live in public because of for whatever reason, it might be their status or how people look at them. Even simple games as uh, which I found out a few years ago that you can just mod the hell out of Skyrim and make that like a kinky fantasy wonderland if you <laughs> if you you know if you had the you know the, the patience to set up all the mod managers and everything so yeah there there is a lot and for me actually it didn't come to life for me until i went to a club called bondage agogo that was an industrial club in san francisco that mm. so some of the cool things were like if you were a woman you can handcuff yourself to the bar for an hour and drink completely free while you're handcuffed <laughs> There was a lot of interesting shows there, and I had a friend who uh, had access to the VIP room, and I got up, invited up there a couple of times, and it was kind of the first place where I watched someone get their lips sewn shut, or some just really heavy, uh, heavy, heavy uh, discipline. So uh, things like that eventually just kind of filled in those little gaps, but again, I kind of went into this regression at one point in my life, and then so now I'm just kind of looking at things, but gaming also was kind of part of the reason why a lot of these started to come back and click. And actually the game that you wrote, Tales of Gore, which we'll get to in a little bit, was also one of the things that just helped kickstart a lot of stuff into gear for me again. Sexuality and gaming. And I know this is one of the topics that you wanted to speak on. What are your ideas behind sexuality and gaming and game design? For me, it's mostly just that um, in one form or another, you know, sexuality, mating rituals, marriage, children, all of these things are massively important in real life. Historically, they've always been massively important. And yet they're kind of relegated very much to the background in role-playing games, um, le less so in fiction, I think. I think there's a discomfort in part because role-playing is an interactive medium with other people. Um, and so there's discomfort in exploring these things. But when I say exploring sexuality and so on in gaming, I don't necessarily mean, you know, you and Fat Dave down the down the gaming shop, you know, talking out a blow by blow, literally sex scene. Yeah, I just mean that it's, <laughs> that it's there, you know, it can be implied and you understand that these motivations exist for your characters. I mean, if you want to play it out, more power to you. Uh, I think the internet has massively facilitated a lot of more uh, sexual play, particularly you know, just just online, and uh, the LARP, the LARP scene definitely used to be a bit of a meat market with people using the kind of um, deflection that oh, oh, I was only playing my character if they didn't get a positive <laughs> reception, you know. So I was heavily involved in LARP for a long time and certainly saw saw a lot of that. But the the main the main thrust for me is there's this whole panoply of really important human experience that goes relatively untouched and there does seem to be some degree of of interest in it there have been the occasional books whether the couple of comedy ones are out for mongoose or you mentioned the book of erotic fantasy i've written gore there's been a couple of indie games that do bring it up a bit more though i'm not necessarily a fan of the way that they've handled it and certainly with this more recent resurgence of interest in dnd &D in particular a lot of these streamed games and so on involve intra-party romances and things, but there's not really any meat to the bones. There's not really any um, encouragement necessarily to do these kind of things or to incorporate these aspects in your game. And I'm a big believer that system does matter. You can encourage certain behaviors, you can reward certain behaviors, and that helps guide the, the theme and the mood of the game. And that's largely but not entirely missing in, in the tabletop space, I find. 
when you were talking about uh, the book of erotic fantasy, which I was really excited about when I first heard of it, you know, first heard of it, I was just kind of like, Oh my God, this might be something that'll be hopefully well done. And it turned off to be sort of a teenage goth girl wank fest book. Like there was really no, <laughs> there was nothing in it other than like, I can imagine a bunch of 12 year olds giggling at a table going, oh, yes, let's write rules for pregnancy and how girls get pregnant because I have no idea how that works, so I'm going to write D20 rules around it. <laughs> it's just, and it was so disappointing. And, well, also just artistically, it was horrible. I personally don't like photographs and RPGs to the most part. So, yeah. And that's all it was. It was kind of like going, let's get a bunch of our girls' friends that are goth and have them strip and stand in the woods naked. Because that'll be so hot, and we can masturbate to it later. Yeah, I mean that's that's the impression I got from this book. I'm I am friends with the people who wrote that under under pseudonyms. And, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, yeah, it's a long time ago now, so you know they've moved on with their with their lives and so on. But I think they were trying to do something that hadn't really been done, and there were no particular rules about how to do it and right from the moment it was announced it was controversial and it like like we said earlier it did lead to big changes in the in the d20 license to make it a bit more um enforceably family friendly so i think they were they were trying to uh, to walk that line and failed and as a result they released a, a rather compromised product that ended up not really satisfying anyone in particular and became the butt the butt of a few jokes, but I I think it was it was worth trying. It was a it was a heroic effort, I think. No, and as much as I make fun of it, yes, it was the first of a kind, and it even got the eyes of um, Wizards of the Coast, who did take the D twenty license and break it off into the OGL because mm. of of that particular incident. Because it's like, all right, well, D twenty stuff is stuff that's going to be officially compatible with D and D, or not officially, but basically it's okay that you, we use the title the world's greatest role-playing game or whatever in the mm-hmm. in the name. And then the OGL stuff, which was kind of like, this is stuff that other people do and, <laughs> and, and we don't want to know about it. However, OGL did create some cool stuff like um, Steve Kenson did Mutants and Masterminds with OGL. Mm-hmm. And to me, that is like one of my favorite superhero games like of all time. So while that change did stir up a lot of things and also maybe i have to look at it as it was a catalyst to letting mm. other creators take the split and do some really fantastic work with it but i'm sorry i cut you off yeah so. yeah it let them off the hook i mean i i have a lot of sympathy for the book of erotic fantasy people because i fell into a similar sort of sort of trap when i was doing these comedy books for mongoose i was getting incredibly frustrated <laughs> with it and i wanted to do some books on sexuality but they were only really interested if i could give it that kind of um tongue-in-cheek bad puns sort of sort of uh bawdy humor sort of angle so i ended up writing nymphology and quintessential temptress for them which were comedy books that i didn't really want to be comedy books so Nymphology was, in my head, it was more about, okay, so if I look at the real world and I look at how we've applied technology to sexuality, you know, um, sex has been a major driver in internet and other technological advances. What would be the interaction between magic, supernatural technology, and sexuality? So there's there's an undercurrent of seriousness (laughs) beneath the surface in nymphology, which on the surface is just full of terrible puns and stupid spells and things like that. And then quintessential temptress, I was even more frustrated. And because of that, it was neither one thing nor the other. And, um, and so failed at being either. So I think they felt hemmed in a great deal in, in the same way that I, that I did. Like I, I wasn't allowed to explore this topic in a serious way. I had to hide it behind a veil of comedy and, and tone it down more than I really wanted to. Yeah, and then also, and I know we could probably have a whole episode talking about this one topic, but we also have a bunch of very, I don't want to call them puritanical, I kind of want to call them fanatic cultists, but uh, there are those in the industry who take things, especially, I know some of your work in particular, and just other people who have attempted it, and shut it down. 
because it's it's offensive or it, it strikes some chord or something, you know. And again, I guess think the word is offended, where people flip out and then go on huge media campaigns to to crush it. And I've seen this yeah. actually with um, one of the old one of the old school designers that I, I'm friends with, uh, Frank Menzer, the one who created the D and uh, Red Box, or at mm. least he did, was the editor on it. Uh, get totally crushed um, by Jessica Price. Uh, yeah. and, and other works. So leading into that and talking about conventions and things, there was an incident recently in the UK that I know that you spoke up against. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that? or? Yeah, I just, I just want to preface this slightly. Okay. Um, so we were talking earlier about guilt and so on around yeah. kink. And my, my upbringing was not religious at all. It was a very secular upbringing. My discomfort came because... I saw myself um, very much as a, as a feminist, as a, as a progressive, even from a very young age. And so I felt that these feelings that I was having and these desires that I was having were, were drastically inappropriate and completely at odds um, with, with a modern progressive outlook, even though I would never have thought of anything non-consensual or whatever. I, that, that was the guilt that was pressing on me. I'd still call myself an egalitarian, I, I think. But that's where we seem to be seeing this this pressure on on free expression in the industry. And like like you said, we could go off a whole episode on that. It's yeah. something I talk about quite often on on my channel and so on. So I don't want to dwell on that too much here. Yeah. But it does create a hostile atmosphere and one in which it's difficult to explore these topics that I want to explore. Because if you write a game that involves torture or rape or genocide or whatever it's instantly assumed that you're somehow being a booster for those things rather than just having them as a thing that happens in your world or that villains do or yeah or whatever else you're seem to be endorsing it so the the incident that you alluded to i i haven't been to a uh, a uk convention in a few years <laughs> pretty much since some of these rules and regulations came in though it's purely coincidental i haven't, I haven't been well for a few years mm -hmm. um but uh, a, a games master who at least in the uk has a reputation for using systems from one game to do scenarios that have very little to do with that game and that always have a kind of comedic twist to them um i don't know if you're familiar with the series dad's army but he did one that was basically dad's army against the deep ones <laughs> sort of thing so he yeah he's, he's always been known for mixing genres and playing about with them and defying people's expectations and he ran a game which was based on another uk comedy series called the inbetweeners i don't know if any, anyone out there's familiar with that but it's um lad culture sort of teenage boys growing up getting into i guess american pie style hijinks so it's it's a teen sex comedy uh -huh. and com comedy of misadventure, really. But he decided to run this adventure as a combination of that and Hostel. So he was running it as a as a kind of um, as a horror game, anyway. But the system he decided to use for it was um, Tales from the Loop, uh, okay. which is more of a kind of um, Stranger Things sort of. Um, so it's seen not entirely appropriately by people as a kind of kids on bikes, Goonies type yeah. thing. It isn't really that. So you had a system that created one set of expectations in people and you had a scenario based on a, a two pop culture references, a, a comedy and a horror film that they weren't necessarily au fait with. And they went into this scenario and then... It just, uh, I think it just wasn't what they were expecting and because he was running this as a horror scenario. And then in one part of it, their characters uh, wake up in the back of a van, naked, chained up. They're meant to be, be being released so that these horrible people can hunt them down. And he described them as, as being covered in shit and having sore bottoms, which he intended to imply that they had been drugged and this was a side effect of the drug, but which they took to mean that their characters had been anally raped. Uh, uh. Right? And that's where it, it all comes from, is that, that singular apparent misunderstanding. Um, now my instinct is always for, for justice. I get criticised quite a bit for having such a strong moral compass that I stand up for people 
who might well be repugnant, but you know, I think you've got to give everyone their the day in court, even if it's the court of public opinion. So I investigated that and I, I talked to the guy at the center of it. I tried to talk to the people who were complaining, but they they wouldn't talk to me and blocked me and everything. Um and yeah, I got a lot of a lot of backlash for that. I used to be um pretty good friends with uh Satine Phoenix and she was basically hounded out of being my friend <laughs> by people bombarding her with messages and basically bullying her into no longer talking to me. Um and we did have a difference of opinion, so it's not just the bullying. Yeah. She's she's more of the um believe the victim school and I'm more of the take take the accusation seriously but believe the evidence sort of school. So we did have a have a disagreement there. It's okay. It, it it all contributes to this hostile atmosphere around a lot of games, a lot of games conventions. That there's this this clash of expectations, and even if you mark your game eighteen plus as he had, even if you mark it horror, even if you describe it in in terms that should be obvious to anyone who who knows the references, it's still not enough. If someone gets upset at your table for for whatever reason, whether it's a misunderstanding or whatever else, that that's it. You're you're cast out. In American conventions, I'm seeing a very huge change of culture, which I don't know. I I guess maybe I can be looked at as kind of an old codger or someone who just doesn't particularly see these um, changes as valuable. But uh, the actually the um, the host or the one of the former hosts of uh, Game School, uh, Pete Bryant, which I, I know you know. Uh, yeah. We went to a convention. I won't go ahead and mention the convention's name, though. But it's a convention that was set up as a convention where game designers would go, and the purpose is game designers would pay into this convention. They would have, you know, pay a bit of money, but they would ensure that each game designer had a group of people to um, to play test. Uh, the game, mm. which is actually a really nice thing. And honestly, there's a lot of really cool people at this convention. I got to meet Kenneth Height and uh, see a couple of friends that I, I know in the industry. So day one, there's this orientation. And uh, we're like, oh, well, cool. I'd really like, you know, I'm here as a game designer. I'm here to run uh, some stuff that I'm working on. And I kind of want to know the rules of the game. So mm. um, we went down uh, to the orientation. And the orientation had nothing absolutely nothing to do with how this convention runs it actually had to do with how to interact with people um it also introduced things like using the red card it went over things there's apparently this new and i'm going to call it new because i only heard about it a couple years ago where the game master puts a flower on the table that has different color petals and each color petal represents an emotional feeling um, that a player might have. And now the game master is actually supposed to look at this, look at how players interact with this pedal to know whether or not they can actually talk about a certain topic. And this whole hour was filled with basically standing on a soapbox and talking about how what horrible people we are in general and how we need to stop that behavior and to favor another behavior. And in my mind, I'm just sitting there going, I'm here at a game convention. I'm here to run games, get feedback and have fun and go home. I don't want to have to walk in to a situation in every game where I'm going to have to worry about one word triggering someone's whatever. And suddenly now I'm villainized or I have to actually rewrite the scenario that I'm doing in progress in order to appease one person. And I know recently Monty Cook Games released this book, like the Book of Consent or something like that, which is fine. And I'm glad that look, I'm glad that people are taking more interest in the the player experience because this is a good thing. But there's also now a list out there that players will check off certain things, hand it to the game master, and the game master has to then tell the player if any of the content is uh, in that game so they know whether or not they, they want to show up or not. And I guess, sure, I, I don't know. I, I hate to sound all flippy-floppy on it, but in some ways I think it's great. Like I said, player experience is very important. I personally... I'm very sensitive to people's feelings. I don't like to see people feel uncomfortable because then that makes me feel uncomfortable. But on the other hand, I also feel it's kind of a bullying tactic too, 
where it's like, all right, well, these two players don't like spiders. And my game is about, you know, the haunted spider forest of whatever. Mm. Am I now going to have to change it? Oh, well, now they're haunted chipmunks that live in the <laughs> unicorn forest. And all they do is sip tea because everyone else has, you know, problems with being eaten by chipmunks or, or whatever. So, and I know I just probably went on a five minute rant about this, but <laughs> it's, um, it's something I'm really concerned with because as, as gamers, all right. So as a game master, and you can agree with me or not, but as a game master, we're storytellers. And in order to be a storyteller, we need to be able to invoke certain emotions in people, or otherwise the story is completely rubbish. It It's basically you're talking at someone and not engaging them at all. But if you start stripping away the elements of provoking emotion, then really what are you left with? Yeah, I'm not convinced of the utility of these rules. And I, I find it very interesting that the other people involved in games who i know are are also involved in kink you know consent is massively important in the kink scene and yet the people who are involved in both kink and gaming that i know all react with a kind of quizzical what's the point of this when it comes to to bringing it into role-playing games um you you would think if any community was going to be on on board with this idea it would be them but then i also think there's also a very strong element of personal responsibility and negotiation within the kink scene whereas these kind of tools tend to be much more dictatorial and imposed i mean a lot of the time you're just playing with your home group right which is kind of like doing a doing a kink scene with someone who you know very well and you've negotiated everything with prior. Yeah. Right. You know what people's hot buttons are, you know exactly how far you can push it, all the rest of it. So these kind of forms and so on are completely unnecessary in that kind of ongoing context. And at conventions or shop games or you know, that that sort of thing, at, at events, you don't have the time to engage in a full and absolute negotiation with six other people around the table because you've only got a two, three, four, maybe maybe six-hour slot, and it's going to eat up a lot of time to negotiate with everyone. You don't have the time to rewrite a scenario to take into account everyone's little, little foibles and concerns. Yeah. So I favor content warnings without going you know into spoiler territory so this is an 18 plus horror game you can expect themes of i don't know torture dismemberment sexual violence whatever and you put that on your on your thing without giving away too much and then it's the responsibility of the individual player well do i sign up to this game or not i'd like the sound of that i don't like the sound of that if you can't handle it just say so and leave the table rather than kicking up a stink or getting the people who run the convention involved or getting people thrown out or taking to Twitter to you know, whip up a storm to get them cast out of the industry. That all just seems too much. And the trouble is when you object to things like this, you're always cast in the light of some horrible person who doesn't care about consent or thinks harassment is, is okay. That's the other big thing that's been happening at conventions is these anti-harassment policies that have virtually nothing to do with harassment yeah. and much more to do with censoring people's stands and so on. Um, the last Dragon Meet I went to, which I think was the last one they did in in Kensington, um, I think they just had that last weekend or this weekend as well, but um, the last one of those I went to, they had one of these policies that they basically just cut and pasted out of, I think, the, the Geek Feminism Wiki, and it had virtually nothing to do with harassment. And me and a few other friends, we, we looked through this and then we went round every single stall in the in the um, in the sales area. And 80% of them, if that policy had been enforced to the letter, would have had to have been closed down and thrown out of the convention. So, I mean, they've revised it since. It's nowhere near as bad as it used to be. So, so good on them. But it's, all it takes is one asshole to insist that these rules be enforced you know, canonically as as written, and your convention is kaput. And it, like I said, it has become this really hostile environment. And if you're running a horror game, right, what, what what's the goal of a horror story or a horror film? It, it's to horrify. Yeah. It's to disgust. The point is to make people uncomfortable. Um, and if you can't do that, you can't 
you can't run a horror game in any meaningful sense. So, I mean, you've got to be sensitive to other people, but I think content warnings in these contexts is the way to go. And this, these ideas of these consent forms and so on, most of the time you're playing with people you know, so they're completely irrelevant. And the rest of the time you don't have time. So I, I just don't see the point. It seems to be performative wokeness. Yeah, I, I 100% agree with that. It's, I don't know, it's unnerving. And I hate nowadays when I'm creating content, maybe, maybe it's a good thing that now I have to sit there and think about what I write. But I also feel that kind of takes away from my creativity, where if I have a really great idea, and believe me, I'm not an asshole. I'm kind of a fairly nice guy when it comes to doing anything. <laughs> but I don't know. I just now I have to sit there and completely comb through everything. The, the other thing is, if if these rules, like the lines and veils or the X card or whatever that flower thing is, if it was entirely optional, that would be one thing, right? If you want to do that at your table, fine, knock yourself out. But a lot of these conventions and stores and events are now enforcing these. So it, it's... <laughs> I don't consent to that, and you're trying to force me to do something that I don't want to do, which violates the whole point of, your, <laughs> of the whole exercise. So this actually might be a lead into the next topic, but so the last, my last inner uh, person I interviewed for the the podcast was uh, Patrick O'Sullivan, who is a, um, uh, a basically a film writer and uh, does some other cool stuff. But he's actually going to be running Tales of Gore at a a um, mainstream convention uh, next year. <laughs> So um, GaryCon, which is kind of the big OSR convention out in uh, Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. Mm. So, And he's pretty psyched about it, and they've actually approved the event. And uh, if you ever get a chance just to go back and listen to the last half of um, uh, the last podcast, uh, episode four, uh, so sorry, episode three, he actually talks a little bit about challenges that uh, he might be having, you know, going forward at a, at a convention running something such as um, Tales of Gore. But that, like I said, that kind of leads us into uh, the next topic is the Tales of Gore RPG. So I'm curious, like, did, was this something that you just kind of said, hey, wouldn't it be cool to have a Gore RPG? Or was there a little bit more thinking uh, involved to bring it up to speed? A lot of the stuff that's gone well for me has just been kind of random Hail Marys, uh -huh. right? I mean, like, like my first break in the industry was just, you know, spamming a whole bunch of people with with ideas and seeing what stuck um now obviously gore had long been a an influence on me like as we discussed you know it was um kind of my my rescuer from thinking there was something wrong with me and it's it's often derided and considered derivative and schlocky and, and whatever else but the world building in it is really really good and really in depth and it it hangs together if you go along with its baseline assumptions really really well so it's a really compelling world and even when the books were uh, soft banned i guess i guess you'd say when they were out of publication people kept the stories going and they role-played on irc and you mentioned second yeah. life i think um at its height in Second Life, there was something like 50,000 Gurian characters registered on it. And it's always been massively popular with women, which which surprises some people. Uh, I don't know, don't particularly know why, <laughs> but, but it does seem, to, does seem to surprise them. So it was, it was just there, and it had become so important to me. And as time went on, I got more and more frustrated with RPG publishing and how timid it was around these areas. And I saw Gore as being really popular, and I thought, well, you know, there's there's no harm in asking. So I've been try I'd been trying to get the license or to get hold of the right agent or someone to get hold of John Norman. Well, we'll stick to his pen name for for years and years and years, and gotten nowhere because it seemed like he just once he fell out of publication, there wasn't particularly a way to get hold of him. And then sort of eBooks really started sort of taking off again. And via one of the ebook publishers of his books, I managed to get hold of his agent, who is who is a really cool, friendly guy. Um, and we managed to thrash out a deal, and and so I, I got the got the rights to publish the game. As it stands now, I unless I screw up royally, I basically have the right to to publish 
degree in RPG stuff in perpetuity that they can withdraw the license at um, at any time with a certain period of notice. But uh, they're pleased with it. So far as I can make out, Norman's pleased with the work. So uh, yeah, it was just it was just trying, and, and that would be my advice to anyone out there who wants to do anything try because that already puts you ahead of 90 percent of people who never try so that's that's my word of wisdom i guess just try so how was it received publicly like when you made the announcement and going up to actually getting it to be a physical thing i thought there would be a much more strong negative reaction than there was though i probably didn't see a lot of it because the announcement and creation and the development of it took place kind of starting a little bit before Gamergate and then into post-Gamergate. So a lot of people were blocking me uh, <laughs> around then. So I, so I may not have seen the full negative reaction. I still occasionally see someone say, well, of course that horrible person would, would write that. But it wasn't as massively negative as I thought. And there was a lot of positivity Mostly from the uh, from the old online fandom, though the lifestylers were a bit suspicious and felt that I some of them felt that I was kind of cheapening it. I mean, I'm I'm not a lifestyler, but as a kind of um, as a flavor, as a character to add to your BDSM play, I I think it has a has a lot going for it uh, as a sort of culture, I guess. But most mostly, uh, most of what I saw was positive. But I mean, it's just the usual kind of suspects who've had it in for me for a while <laughs> with the negative ones. That wasn't that surprising. Yeah, I've noticed that. So I am um, I am a dom and I'm a Gorian in the sense of that I follow Gorian philosophy. So because while I don't live it with my my girl, my wife, I still am involved in the community a lot. And it is a way of thinking and the philosophy is amazing. I actually, I'm in a group called Living Gore. And if I, if there's a day that doesn't go by where I'm not posting one of the quotes from the books or talking in the terms of a Gorian in the sense of uh, natural order and who I'm speaking to and uh, protocol and everything else, you know, it's not a day. But there are a lot out there in the community that really get offended if they think that you are role-playing. Like, in a sense, it's like, I understand that it is a lifestyle. Some people, it's a 24-7 it's a lifestyle. Actually, two of my closest friends are 24-7 lifestyle Gorians, which is great. And I love them both. They're most amazing. Probably my best friends right now. But it's it's kind of funny because a lot of people that come into the group, if they see someone doing a narrative, like um, uh, the first girl of the house and the, and the group I belong to, will usually do a narrative to how she's serving or what she's doing in the morning, which it's really beautiful, well-written. But we'll have some people come in the group and go, oh, well, you're just role-playing. Well, in a sense, in real life, it is a little bit of a role-play too, because we weren't born on gore. You know, it's, um, yeah. it's, I almost kind of put gore, and I know lightning will strike me maybe sometime, but I also equate gore to something like the Bible, to being a Christian or a Jew, or it's, it's, a, it's basically, it's a series of books with quotes and things of that nature that have basically formed a religion or a life path for the people who are involved in it. So to me, is that sort of thing. It's where, you know, we're not Gorian. If the planet, you know, if Gore exists or the steel worlds exist, well, that's awesome. But as far as our evidence shows, it does not. So isn't almost everything we do a role play when it, when it comes to philosophies, to whatever. But that's, and that's kind of what I look at too when I look at Gore. So when we have people that come into our group and are just like, oh, you guys are just role playing, it's just kind of like, um, well, and it's not really role play. <laughs> but I also feel that, uh, especially the one, every, we have a lot of new people that come in that are just interested in gore. Some stay and participate and have become real, a part of the family in a sense. But there are also people who just kind of come in who are just your average kinkster thinking that, oh, well, they're slaves and I'm going to get over and see boob shots or whatever, which is usually not the case. And then they just disappear. But <laughs> the um, actually the encyclopedia that you had done alongside the RPG is one of my biggest suggested books. And I do know a few that have 
bought a copy and really just kind of keep it near them because it's a lot of books to try to remember. And as much as you can say, yeah. I read everything, so I'm this like super gore enthusiast, you're going to forget certain things. And that book is an amazing book to just go back and reference things. Yeah, and there are some slight contradictions between the books, but I think that reflects the development of the Korean culture throughout the novels. I've tried to reconcile that as best I can, and I will be adding information from the newer novels to an update at some point. I don't know when yet. but Awesome. So with the information, because I know well, in the RPG part, you actually, there is a section where you start talking about sex and, and role play and, and things like that. So do you think uh, the, or in your opinion, do you think that the Gore RPG will help mm-hmm. educate possibly some that are interested in the lifestyle? Like if, say like, for example, they're somewhere up in the mountains where internet is bad, and but they managed to get their hands on a copy <laughs> of, of your book. Do you think it might be a good starting point for those interested in a lifestyle and then to like research it further or... I, I I would I would love to think it would go kind of full circle where the 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 novels kind of helped me realize I wasn't just some sick looking pervert. <laughs> I, would, I would love to think that that people would buy these and that would give them a, a similar sort of lifeline. So I'd like to think that. And I did try to be as accommodating as possible to everyone who might be interested in the books. That's part of the reason I put the encyclopedia as a as a separate book because I knew there would be people who didn't want to role play in a in a traditional sense but would want the information so that that was a big big part of why i split them and i can understand why people in the kink community and why Korean lifestylers have this kind of siege mentality having lived through the satanic panic around around uh, rpg games you know there's been a lot of bad press and a lot of projects that never saw the light of day and that ended up ripping people off and so on. So I was very conscious of that, but trying to be all things to all people is also difficult. So I was bound to offend somebody, but um, I do think it does. It The, the, the books together, I think that, that I wrote do make a good introduction though. There is an aspect that I missed. I think that I need to make more, explicit if i do get the the updated editions done any anytime soon and this became apparent more talking through mormon's agent so in many ways i don't think norman sees gore as being bdsm uh i think he sees it's far more um sort of philosophical commentary on on gender relations and things for, for all that it's it's still fictional and he finds some aspects of the BDSM community and so on to be not Gorean because he says whatever's Gorean is is beautiful and he finds some of the things within the BDSM community to be ugly to his personal tastes. So I think there's there's more there's room for me to be more descriptive and to really go into how the sort of Gorean philosophy differs from the sort of BDSM sense. I mean, a, a master that um, hurts a girl just for the sake of it in a Korean sense would, would be a bad master, would be a, a dishonorable person yeah. if they just do it for the sake. There's always some more meaning behind it in that sense. But if you're a sadist past, partnered with a masochist in a BDSM relationship, the pain can be the point in, in and of itself. And that's that's fine too, but there's a, there's a distinction in the Korean philosophy that I don't think is particularly well articulated <laughs> in my own book. So that's something I, I would like to go back yeah, to. Yeah, because there's actually, and I, I'll mangle the quote, but there is a, actually a few quotes that talk about that masters rarely whip or bring the lash to a slave because it's what's the purpose and, um, you know, and that, that's something that's done in an extreme case. So, yeah, and I agree with the idea that, I, but if that is part of the the MS relationship that they have, that they're, you know, sadist and masochist on either end, and that's what they do to express their relationship, uh, then that's fine. But, yeah, as far as uh, the Gorian philosophy and a lot of the quotes, it is not something that matches up. So I totally agree Yeah, and the, the other thing is when I was um... – commissioning the art which was done by michael manning who's a pretty famous fetish artist and and designer who's 
brilliant, but slow. <laughs> um, one of the things that came up when I was sort of back and forthing with with Norman's agent and sort of Norman by proxy, did they didn't want any depictions of actual sexual congress in the book, mm. and um, there were a few other restrictions as well. I don't think that was due to to censorship or, or whatever. It's just he didn't want it to be that crude i mean personally i think there's ways that you can you can illustrate that that are, that are perfectly beautiful but i i i understood where they were coming from originally i wanted to do more hardcore i suppose illustrations in the book but keeping keeping it beautiful but this was one instance where uh going along with like a, a, what i guess you'd call censorship actually ended up making sense i think and and worked yeah, absolutely. I mean, the artwork is beautiful in the book. It's very well placed. Um, I think it uh, it says a lot to give a, a very good feel to Gorian uh, culture, Gorian lifestyle. There's a couple in, of the. There's one where I believe there's it's in a Tahari cafe, or at least that's the mm-hmm. image. And th- like that to me, that's an amazing piece. You know, so that's uh, I think the the artwork really fit it, and sure, maybe some more explicit stuff may have kind of added a little bit more flavor, but I think it was very tastefully done. It gets the point across without it being like the book of erotic fantasy, right? Where <laughs> I'm sorry, I know I just keep harping, but I'll stop. All right, and I know that you've actually intru- well, I won't say it for a fact, but like for example, your book uh, Machinations of the Space Princess. That also kind of mm-hmm. had a feeling of some underlying uh, kink to it as well. Yeah, I mean that's that's drawing heavily. The main influences on that are really the old uh, Metal Hurlant or heavy metal sort of Euro comic gotcha. magazine. So that was one of the big influences. Another big influence was Borderlands, which has its own mess of crude humor yeah. <laughs> and so on. And some sort of more adult science fiction and, and fantasy works or influences as well, but there it's much more implied, I think, than it is uh, in Tales of Gore. But it's it's um, yeah, it was a similar similar sort of idea, and I wanted sexuality to still be important to the game, and I still like to like to have it explored. So, but it's much it's much more of an undercurrent there. It's it's there if you want it, and it's more. Uh, more pinup, I suppose, is the kind of aesthetic. Yeah, it's the... definitely not in your face. Like I know there's um, Alpha Blue that's out there that is definitely a very in-your-face kink-related RPG. But I think mostly anything Vendress Satanis does has that um, that theme to it. Yeah, he he wears his heart and his various other organs on his sleeve. I think. <laughs> but all right, so let's uh, let's start winding down. Actually, I know that you were talking about a, a card game, election party, that you are working on currently. Um, or I'm not too sure if it's out yet or not. But you want to talk a little bit about election party? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so weird story, really. Um, I know people all over the place in all kinds of weird little communities and niches and stuff all over the place. And I had been involved in a website called Trigger Warning, uh, triggerwarning.us. There's several other sites and video channels and things to do with that. Um, And that was kind of headed up by transhumanist and, and futurists called Rachel Haywire. And she saw some of the video work that I've been doing on my own channel, which has, I think, been getting better. And she was going to run to be the presidential candidate for the American Transhumanist Party. So I got involved in helping her with with that, making video materials and design materials and um, copy editing and all kinds of stuff, sort of support and boosting of that. And that whole campaign became an enormous shit show. <laughs> there's the there's that old saying that you know you know that the fighting gets so vicious because the stakes are so small and that was talking about academia and here we're talking about a, a relatively small group of futurists and transhumanists and it just got incredibly bitter and stupid and there were people were hiring bots and all kinds of just just stupidity and uh, she was basically robbed of the of the nomination, though I don't think she'd want to be representing them now because uh, they were a little bit tied up in Epstein money, which was rather unsavory, and that whole mess mm-hmm. sort of sort of came out. So she came out of that out of that just kind of 
cynical and, and threw up her hands at the whole thing and had this idea to do a card game sort of satirizing politics in general and she knew that I worked in games and so we we thrashed out an idea for a game pretty pretty bloody quickly actually um, I tend to find that when I have ideas that come together quickly they tend to be good ones that work uh, so, so between us we put together this card game we've done rapid prototyping and, and play testing I'm just waiting on some final proofs and then we hope to do a to do a pre-order but the idea of the game is that you're all candidates for I don't know generalissimo or president or whatever else you get a kind of role to play so you could be a, a celebrity standing for office or you know, a boring moderate centrist or a Russian bot or <laughs> whatever else, and you're standing to become president. But you get dealt three random policies that you have to try and string together into some kind of coherent platform. And some of them are really sort of out there, like let's let's eliminate poverty by killing the poor and eating them is, is like one of them. So you have to string that together and you have to put it together into a kind of humorous presentation to the other players. And they get a chance to play scandals on you. Like it, you, maybe you you looked at a, a marijuana cigarette once in university or whatever, and then you have to to answer those. And then everyone votes, but you're not allowed to vote for yourself. Then then you see who wins, and then you think about how that relates to our real democracies, and you drink heavily for the rest <laughs> of the evening. Is <laughs> the basic idea. So it's a, it's a party game that satirizes absolutely everything about modern politics. That that actually sounds really fun. So you said it's only it's right now just kind of a prototype um, format. We were we were trying to get it out before uh, Christmas, but there's just no way that's going to happen with the with the lag on printing times, especially around this time of year. So I'm just waiting on some final proofs, and then if I approve them, we'll go into pre order. Yeah, card games in the U.S. have been kind of quirky to think about getting going, uh, just because we now have that uh, that tariff going on. So, and it's really made it difficult yeah. in America to go. You know, like previously, we would just go to China or India and just kind of go, "Hey, <laughs> print these really cheap and send them <laughs> back to us." All right, you know, sure, maybe there was the late shipping, or a ship got lost at sea, or I don't know, sea monsters came and. And, and slowed everything down, but for the most part, it wasn't particularly costly. But now with our tariffs, uh, the tariff going on, a lot of game designers are sitting there going, "Well, fuck, what do we do now?" So, yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's difficult. I mean, this is an Italian company. I've got printing them, provided we can get enough pre-orders or order enough stock. It's it's competitive. Um, and given the conditions in China and what's going on in Hong Kong, we didn't want to put any money into into China. Gotcha. So uh, hopefully it, it'll all work out. It'll be a little bit pricier than we would have liked, but it should be all okay. Right. Well, definitely when that uh, starts getting ready to go on pre-order and everything, uh, definitely uh, send information my way, and I'll I, I would definitely be one to pre-order, and I'll spread it amongst my. Uh, my audience and various channels uh, here as well. So uh, I'm looking cool. forward to it. All right. So that looks like it's, uh, we're kind of coming to a close. Is there anything else that uh, you kind of wanted to mention while we're on or? I've got my own sales point website up now, which I'm trying to encourage people to use, uh, which, cause it's relatively censorship free and uh, I get more money, okay. <laughs> which is an important consideration. So that's post mort.com. I'm currently running a fundraiser for a friend of mine who used to be involved in the gaming community a lot more, um, who unfortunately was misdiagnosed for many years and now needs a, a wheelchair as a prerequisite mm. to getting some disabled housing. So we're trying to raise a thousand pounds, sorry, two thousand pounds, and we're at one thousand two hundred already, which is pretty good. Uh, but it's Jamie's awesome chair at JustGiving.com if you want to find it. All right, and I'll make sure those get into the show notes as well, uh, so that the link is uh, is there, uh, so they can access it. Yeah, the the full charity address is justgiving.com slash crowdfunding slash Jamie's awesome chair, or one word. If you have feedback on this episode, questions you'd like to ask us, or or suggestions, send them over to host at alternative-play.com, or check us out on the web at www alternative-play.com and don't forget our patreon at 
patreon.com slash alternative underscore play. Yes, there's an underscore in that one. And thank you for joining us on this episode of Alternative Play. And remember, dragons are not the only thing that play in dungeons, so keep your gaming kinky, safe, and consensual. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Alternative Play. We hope you enjoyed your time in our playroom. Alternative Play is an attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 4.0 international creative commons work. You may share it with whomever you like, so long as you don't sell or modify it. Like what we are doing? Subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash alternative underscore play or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. 